Good morning. It's good to see all of you. As Lee said, my name is Brian, and I get to serve as one of the uh, pastors here. Mark, our senior pastor, if, you're, if you've been around for a while, you know Mark. He hasn't been gone that long, has he? Just two weeks. Uh, last week, he spoke at our men's retreats to about 100 men up in the mountains, and this last week, he's worked off-site on a, uh, on a uh, study week to get ready for the next series of sermons to come. You know, thankfully our church and what it does is so much more than these 30 minutes we have together each week. And yet we think the word of God is really important and critical and crucial also. So please pray for Mark as he uh, comes to preach each week and for each man that gets up here, we really value your prayers for us as we do that. Now, before we dig into these two uh, 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 parables that Lee read, um, if you've been around our church for a while, you know that this is the time of year when we talk about one of our three local ministry partners, in this case, Life Network. And we talk about Life Network at this time of year because next Sunday is the uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday. And June 1st is Life Network's fundraiser called Walk for Life. And Life Network, if you don't know, is our local crisis uh, pregnancy center, and they seek to help our city value life, that of the um, unborn, and to support their parents as well, who sometimes face very hard choices. And so uh, we have fun with this each year. Our church engages in the Walk for Life. Last year, the Life Network raised about 362000 through the event, and our church helped raise about 32500 of that. And if you know, uh, each year Mark and I like to have a little friendly uh, competition to see which one of us can raise more for the Walk for Life. And last year, the best team won, (laughs) Team Brian. I won this cup. (laughs) Presbyterians know how to celebrate. It's my trophy. No, thanks to my team, we raised a little over 4000 for Life Network through the Walk for Life. And so this year, you can go to walkforlife.com, click on um, sponsor and search for my name. <laughs> and you can give to Life Network that way. That's the only name you can search for there. It's the only box. It's the only text that box will take. Actually, we have fun doing this every year to compete a little bit, see who can do the most. So we want to spread that around to uh, see who in our church can also raise. Uh, last year, our Cornerstone group raised a little over $5,500. And I want to know if there's any communities in our church this year that can beat that. So we want to have our communities compete this year against each other as well. So watch for that. Watch for more information to how you can raise money for the Life Network through the Walk for Life and how your community can as well and see if anybody can beat uh, Cornerstone this year. So that's coming up June 1st. All right, so let's turn our uh, focus now to the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl. And as you might know, we're going through a year-long focus on prayer. And not just prayer, but prayer for God to bring his kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And the reason we wanted to stop in the midst of this focus and look at these two uh, things that Jesus says about the hidden treasure and the pearl, we want to do that because they tell us something really critical and kind of plain and obvious, but too easily um, overlooked. 
And that is, these uh, teach us that if you want something, you'll ask for it. And if you don't want it, you won't ask for it. So we can say all year long, ask for the kingdom, but if you don't want the kingdom, you're not going to ask for it. Or if you do, it'll be kind of half-hearted and you won't really mean it. So just to show you what I mean, think of what you as a child were like at Christmas time. We think of kids and Christmas, and we have these wonderful pictures in our head of how glorious and cute and adorable and wonderful and homey it is. Except if you were near me when I was a kid, I think I must have been a royal pain. Because once I knew I wanted something for Christmas, that's all I talked about for a month. And I don't care if I saw it at a friend's house and suddenly had to have it, or if I saw something on TV that showed this toy, and I didn't know that it was there 30 seconds before I saw the commercial, but now I can't live without it. Or maybe I saw it in a magazine or wherever, but I was relentless unstoppable in asking for what I wanted. I would tell everybody and I would ask and ask and ask and ask. And so I think the hidden treasure and the pearl, I think they both show us that once we see what the kingdom is, we will ask and ask and ask. We will beg God that his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this morning, I want us to see this as we look first at the surpassing value of the kingdom, second, the surprising value of the kingdom, and then third, we'll see the supreme value of the kingdom's king, the supreme value of the king. So first, the surpassing value of the kingdom. Now, when Lee read these two short uh, stories, The Hidden Treasure and the Pearl, they're pretty straightforward. They make the same main point each. So let's look first at verse 44 about the parable of the hidden treasure. We don't know much. It's only a few words long. We know that a man goes out into a field. We don't know why he's in the field. Is he working? Is he plowing? We don't know. And he finds a treasure. We don't know what kind of treasure. We don't know what he's found, but we know it's good. Because in his joy, he puts the dirt back on top, doesn't tell anyone, and then he goes and he sells everything he has so he can buy this field with the hidden treasure. So clearly, the man who owned the field first did not know about the treasure that he had found in the field. And he goes and he buys this field. So just a few things to help us hear this as Jesus' um, first um, hearers would have heard it. It's strange for you and I to think about finding hidden treasure. I mean, we hear about such things, but does it ever actually happen? I mean, I'd ask you to raise your hand, but it might be weird if you said, yeah, I found some buried treasure. You probably don't know anyone who's actually found buried treasure. But while it would be weird for us, it wasn't so strange or weird in Jesus' day. Because in Jesus' day, they didn't have banks like we have. They didn't have safes like we have. They didn't have vaults like we have. So where would you hide your valuable things? In the dirt. And they lived in a place that saw a fair amount of war and invasions sweep through over the years. And so sometimes people would hide their valuables in the fields and not come back to get it. So it was not that uncommon. I mean, it was rare, but not like it is today to be plowing or working in a field or digging and, whoa, what's this? How long has it been here? It was 
Um, something that happened enough such that there were laws or customs that told you what to do when you found buried treasure in the field. And that is, if you took the buried treasure out of the dirt, you had to give it to the field's owner. If you left it in the field, you could go and buy it. So the man was according to the law or custom of the day, but regardless, that's not really the point Jesus is trying to make, is it? What's the point that Jesus is trying to make with the parable of the hidden treasure? He tells you the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, he says here, is like a man who finds a hidden treasure. And because it brings him so much joy, he's willing to sell all he has to get it. That's how good the kingdom is. It is of surpassing value. And it's the same point with the pearl of great price. Except in this time, except a man accidentally finding a treasure, this man, this merchant, is looking for a pearl, which were highly sought after in Jesus' day. He's trying to find a pearl, and when he finds one of great value, he also does the same thing the man with the treasure did, sold everything he had so he could have that pearl. What's Jesus trying to say? Again, he says the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like a man who finds a pearl. And it's so good, it's worth so much that he sells all he has so that he can have this pearl. So both of these are very similar and they make the same point about the value of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Now Jesus isn't saying here that if you sell all you have and give it to the church, that you'll have the kingdom of heaven. Or if you sell all you have, then you'll buy the kingdom of heaven. Or you'll earn salvation. That's not the point of what he's trying to say. He's trying to tell you how much it's worth, how good it is, how valuable it is, and how when you see that, yes, you'll be willing to sacrifice when Jesus calls. You'll be willing to give, to work, to see it come, because it's worth so much. And yes, you'll be willing even to pray. For the kingdom to come. Once you see how valuable it is, once you see the surpassing value of this kingdom, you'll be willing to pray for it to come. Well, then that brings us a question. Why is it so good? What makes the kingdom so valuable? And obviously, in these two short stories, Jesus does not tell us everything about the kingdom, except that it is worth everything. So now we've zoomed in here on what Jesus says in these verses. Let's zoom out to the rest of the Gospel of Matthew to find out our second point about the surprising value of the kingdom. The surprising value of the kingdom. And it's surprising in at least a few ways. First, I think the kingdom is surprising in how full and comprehensive it is. What do you think of when someone says, your kingdom come? What do you think the kingdom of God is? If you had to answer that question, what would you say? And I think many of us would talk about, well, you're praying for people to come to faith. You're praying for people to come to Christ, to be forgiven of their sins and to have a relationship with him. Yes, is that all the kingdom is or is it more? Well, you might say, well, maybe it's also praying for people to grow in their walk with the Lord, to have victory over the sin in their life and to know Jesus more. Yes, but is that all it is? 
Is it just people coming to faith and growing in their walk with the Lord? Well, some of you might say, well, then it's the church. When you pray for the kingdom, you pray for the church at large, here, there, and everywhere. Yes, but does Jesus say that the kingdom equals the church and the church equals the kingdom? He actually never says that. So all these things are part of the kingdom, but they're not the whole thing. It's surprising in how full and comprehensive it is. So I'm saying the kingdom isn't less than that, but it's more than that. And how do I know it's more than that? Well, when Jesus shows up here in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's context. Again, we're zooming out to look at a bigger picture now. He's coming as a king to reclaim something. He's coming as a king who was once obviously and fully Lord and ruler of all there is. But all there is has been broken and fallen and is in rebellion against him as king because of Adam and Eve's sin, because of our sin. So when he shows up and says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's saying the king is back. And when he was king in the garden, was he just king of Adam and Eve's walk with him? Was he just king of their spiritual life? Was he just king of them as two people? Or was he king of everything? And of course the answer, he was king of everything. So the kingdom of God has to involve at least what God had before. He's not coming back to have less than he had at the start. He's coming back to say, it's all still mine. Right? The king is coming and his kingdom is full and comprehensive. So it's more than us coming to faith. It's more than our walk with the Lord. And it's more than the church. Because go back with me, like I just said, to the garden when everything was perfect. When God made the world. He made it all to work together. And he made it under his rule and his lordship. Everything was under his kingship. Adam and Eve's relationship with him was under his rule. Their relationship with each other as people was under his rule. Their relationship with creation was under his rule. His mission he gave them to work and develop the garden, to make it better than he had given it to them in the first place, to kind of, in a sense, co-rule with him as vice regents. This was all under his kingship. So in other words, everything they did as humans to develop the earth and even beyond that to build society and culture would have been part of his kingdom. But when they sin, again, like we said, they broke it all. It all fell apart and creation went into rebellion against him. It no longer works like it's meant to work because Adam and Eve said, we'll just not only not have you as king, but we'll be king in your place. And Satan himself, when he came to tempt them, was also saying, I will be king. So now there is a war over who will rule, who will be king. And Adam and Eve said, we'll be king. And Satan said, I'll be king. And when they did that, not just did their relationship with God fall apart, but their relationship with each other fell apart, just like our relationships often fall to pieces. And their relationship with creation fell to pieces as well. And their relationship with their work and how they went about developing and working, not just the garden, but the whole earth as God meant it to be, came now with thorns and thistles and problems. So when you and I, as people, seek to develop society and culture, it doesn't work. It's broken because there's a kingship problem. But the scriptures say the king is coming back. He has come and he will come again. And when he does, it's going to be I think not just as good as it was, but even better. 
Our relationships with God will be even better than Adam and Eve knew. Our relationships with each other will be even better than they knew. Our relationship with creation and work and developing and making society and culture will all be better too. We're not just gonna float around on clouds plucking our harps and singing. It's the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to do things we do now. We're going to work but it's gonna be good, it's gonna go places. It's not just gonna be so frustrating all the time. We're going to build culture and society, but it's going to be under God's kingship and lordship and rule, and it will be beautiful and glorifying to him as it was meant to be. But does that mean it's all in the future when Jesus comes back? Well, no, because Jesus says, you don't have to look now, but just in chapter 12, right before what we read, he says, If I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, when Jesus came, the kingdom came. And yet he still tells us to pray for it to come. So is he confused? Which is it? Yes, it's there and it's coming in its fullness. You and I would not look around our life and our world in this day and time or any day and time and say, yeah, that's the kingdom of God. It's here, right? And yet the king has come and it's beginning to change. We do see him at work in people's hearts, in the church, and then through them out where they work, live, and play as they bring every concept under his kingship, as they bring every part of society and life under his kingship. And so, yes, when we pray for his kingdom to come, we pray for the salvation of our lost friends and family. And when we pray for his kingdom to come, we're praying for the church. But we're praying that wherever the effects of the fall are seen and felt, that they would be pushed back to the glory of Christ and under his lordship as king. So think about then, what does it mean to pray for the kingdom to come? Well, take any situation in life that you come up against and you think, gosh, There's something broken here. Of course there is. That could be a relationship with a spouse. It could be a relationship in the church. It could be someone's walk with the Lord. It could be their work and their life, or it could be a problem in society or culture. And you think something's broken here, something massive, something small, but there's something broken. What would it look like in this situation if God's rule and reign were fully seen, visible, and expressed? And the difference between what would it look like in that situation for God's rule and reign to be visibly and fully expressed in what you see, that's where you pray for the kingdom to come. And there's all sorts of things to pray for when you pray for the kingdom to come because it's such an expansive and comprehensive thing. You're never done praying for the kingdom of God, for his rule to come. And most importantly, or perhaps acutely in our day and time, where we are told that self rules, the individual rules. If you're in charge of your life, you'll be happy. If you do what feels good, you'll be happy. So what does it look like to pray for the kingdom of God against that thought? And really, does that work? When you're in charge of your life and you're doing what makes you feel happy, does that bring peace and wholeness to relationships? Or to you? Of course not. So we're praying against that false kingdom of self that so many of us live by, all of us live by. So the kingdom is surprising in its fullness, but it's also surprising, I think, in how it comes. And that's why we get at why Jesus tells these 
um, parables in chapter 13. He hasn't told parables yet in the Gospel of Matthew. But if you look back at chapter 13, if you still have it open, it's page 818 and 19 in the Bible, if you use the one in the rack there in front of you, every single part of Matthew 13 is a parable. The parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed, the yeast, the hidden treasure, the pearl, the nets. Why now, in Matthew, are there so many parables? And I think it's because if you were a disciple following Jesus, you would be looking by the end of chapter 12 going, this is not what I signed up for. (laughs) When the king came, I had a certain expectation of what he was going to be like, what he was going to do, and how people were going to respond. And in earlier chapters, that had only been confirmed. For instance, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's the Sermon on the Mount. And man, if you're one of his followers, you're like, yes, the king is here, and he's teaching better than Moses taught. And then in chapters um, 8 and 9, it's mostly about his uh, works of miracles, supernatural things of healing, walking on the water. And you would have been like, yes, this is the king. And then in chapter 10, you're sent out, and yes, people oppose you. But you come back praising God for how the demons responded to you. You had done healings and miracles yourself. You're like, yes. And then you get to chapter 12, and they're accusing you of breaking God's law. They're accusing Jesus of being in line with Satan, and they're starting to plot how to kill him. And you're like, wait, 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 time out. This is the king. Things were going well. I didn't know people were going to be opposed to us. I didn't know there'd be opposition, right? And so Jesus begins to tell these stories to his followers to explain what's going on, both to hide himself and to show himself to those that were following him. And so what does he say first in the parable of the sower? I'm just going to summarize these really quickly. He says there's a farmer that goes out and scatters seed. Some of that seed falls on the path. Some falls on rocky ground. Some falls on thorny ground. Some falls on good ground. The stuff that falls on the path never grows. The stuff that falls on the rocky and the thorny soil, what does it do? It springs up. But then either because it can't get deep roots or because the thorns choke it out, it dies. But the seed that falls on the good soil, what happens? It grows and grows and grows. Why is Jesus saying this now? He's saying, don't worry. This is how it's meant to work. The kingdom of heaven is like this. There will be some who don't get it, but there will be those who do. Don't worry. The kingdom is right on schedule. It's right on track. But they could have looked around and said, well, I thought you'd have more followers. I thought it would be more realized. I thought we'd be like battling Rome by now. What's going on? And so he tells them the mustard seed and the yeast. And he says, my kingdom is like the mustard seed, which is the smallest, tiniest of the seeds, but becomes what? The biggest plant in the garden. He says, yes, it starts small. Don't worry. My kingdom is right on track. It's right on schedule. It's working just like it's supposed to work. And then he tells them the yeast, that the little bit of yeast stays right there in the dough where it starts. No. A little bit works all the way through. So don't worry. My kingdom not only will be the biggest, it will work itself through everything. And then you might say, well, there's still all this evil right alongside the good. Whenever something good happens in the kingdom, it seems like evil is right along there with it. And he says, don't worry. The kingdom of heaven is like this. It's right on schedule. It's right on track. He tells them the story of the wheat and the weeds. And he says, the farmer planted wheat, but then at night someone came and planted weeds beside it. 
And the farmer said, leave them both together until the end, and then I will separate them, right? So there will be evil right alongside the kingdom until Jesus comes back. Don't worry, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's right on schedule, it's right on track. The problem is not with the kingdom, the problem is with your expectations, of how it comes, and that's surprising to the disciples, and it can be surprising to us as well, because don't we have the same expectations as the disciples? Don't we get discouraged when there's opposition to the kingdom? I mean, sure, maybe like in a foreign country or in a different time, but like in my day and age, in my country, who knew? Jesus says, don't worry. It's right on schedule. It's right on track. This is how the kingdom works. I thought more people would respond. He tells us the parable of the sower and says, don't worry. There'll be some who don't get it, but there will be some who do. You say, but it still seems so small. I thought it was going to grow faster. Don't worry. It's the mustard seed and the yeast. It's right on track. It's right on schedule. But there's all this evil. It seems like whenever the kingdom takes a step forward, there's something there to hinder it. Whenever a church comes along that's doing good work, one of the leaders fall. Or whenever a Christian gets involved and does good out in the community somewhere for the sake of the poor or the unborn or whatever else, it seems like something happens that taints it somehow. Yes, the wheat and the weeds. This is how the kingdom of heaven works until Jesus gets back. It's right on track. It's right on schedule. Don't be surprised. Have the right expectations. But he's not just saying, don't worry, there's going to be problems. He's also saying, Don't worry, there will be victory at the end. That's how all these stories end. The good soil grows. The mustard seed becomes the tree. The yeast works its way through. The weeds are done away with. Jesus is saying, have the right expectations, because when we don't have the right expectations, we get discouraged, and when we get discouraged, it gets hard to pray. Maybe it fuels your prayer for a little bit, but then you're like, well, why bother? There's just opposition to the kingdom, and it seems like it's always there. It seems like the evil is always there. Jesus says, with the right expectations, you will long for the kingdom. You'll see that it's like a hidden treasure or like a pearl, and it's of such great worth that with the right expectations, and when you see how comprehensive it is, then you will beg and beg and beg God to bring it in every part of your life, in every part of your heart, in all of your family, in all of our church, in all of our city, all around us, everywhere we see God's rule and reign not fully and visibly realized. We will beg and beg and beg him to come. So now let's look at the supreme value of the king because it doesn't do a lot of good to talk about the kingdom of God without talking about the king. And here's the funny thing about a kingdom. You can't have a kingdom without a king. So you might sign on and say, yes, that kingdom sounds amazing. I'll take a perfect world with God's reign fully realized. And then Jesus says, knock, knock, you got to have me too. If you want the kingdom, you have to have the king. And again, let's zoom out in Matthew. When Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is so valuable, it's like hidden treasure in a pearl, what kind of king in the rest of Matthew are we talking about? Well, his last words before he ascends back into heaven is, all authority has been given to me. And that authority is where? All authority in heaven and? Good. So which authority is not Jesus's? All of it. All authority everywhere is mine. I'm the king. And if you want to be in my kingdom, if you want to taste the fruit of it, you have to have me as king. So when Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth, he's saying something similar to what Paul says in Ephesians 1, where he says, Christ is seated at God's right hand. 
And he is far above all rule and authority and power and above every name that is named in this age and the one to come. Everything is under Christ's feet. And that means a lot of things. It means you have to deal with Christ. Whether you've never had a relationship with him, you have to decide who Jesus is and if he means what he says. And if you're a part of the church, you also have to deal with Jesus. Because isn't there a way for us to do church and church life and Christianity without really ever dealing with Jesus? We have to deal with him. We have to come to him, engage with him, humble ourselves before his authority. But it also means if Jesus has all authority, if everything's under his feet, if he's king of this kingdom, isn't it worth asking him to bring the kingdom? All authority. So it's worth praying. Your prayers to the king with all authority in heaven on earth to bring his kingdom aren't wasted. You're going to the right place. So the supreme value of the king is found in his authority, but also in his love. Because he's a king of this wonderful kingdom who has chosen to come and experience, put himself under the pain and suffering that came to us when we rejected his rule. He could have as king just stayed far away and said, you know, I was the king and you rebelled against me, so y'all get your act together and then we'll talk. But instead he comes and says, this world is a broken, hurting place because you rebelled against me. And so therefore I will take on the pain of a broken world, of a hurting, aging, sick sometimes human flesh body I will take that on. I will know the misery of this life. I will know the misery of broken relationships. I'll know what it's like to have a friend turn his back on me. I will know what it's like to have a broken relationship with God when he hung on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the king knows, the king knows what it's like to die. The worst that we experience because of our rebellion against his rule and lordship. He knows what that is like. He takes it on himself. That's a king with authority, power, and love. Loved us enough to come under the painful, awful effects of the rejection of his kingdom. But then what happened? He was resurrected. When I read to you those verses from Ephesians, I didn't read to you that he was raised and seated at the right hand of God, when he was resurrected, when breath came back to his lifeless form, when his heart beat and pumped blood through the limbs that had been lifeless, when his eyes opened for the first time in the tomb and death was defeated, his kingdom is as good as fully present because it is, because the worst thing in life, death, has been defeated. And the first fruits of him coming back mean that the full kingdom will come. Also in, in uh, Colossians chapter 1, Paul says Jesus is the firstborn from the dead so that in everything he might have first place. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by his blood. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And through his death and resurrection, his kingdom will come again to all things. So if he's the resurrected king, again, we have to deal with him. When we say, praise God, Christ is risen. We say, he is risen, he is risen indeed. We're also saying, and he's king, and he's Lord. We can't say he's risen and I'm gonna go live my life how I want to. 
We have to say, he's risen, and I bow my knee in every part of my life, and I want everything to bow their knee to him as well. And his kingdom that he brings, first through that resurrection, and then on and on into history, it's worth paying any price, including prayer, including when prayer is hard, including when we don't want to pray. It's still worth it. Your kingdom come, your will be done. When you don't know what else to pray, pray that. When you look at a situation and you see the brokenness and you're like, God, I don't know what to do. I don't even know the way forward. Bring your kingdom because there's no chance we lose anything in the process. Did you notice that the man who sold all he had to buy a field and the man who sold all he had to buy the pearl, was it a sacrifice? Did they risk anything? And the answer is no. They knew that by sacrificing all they had, they would get even more back. You know, every now and again, some crazy investment strategy comes along and put all you have in here because it's growing so fast. And if you put 1,000 or 10,000 or whatever you have towards this investment opportunity, you're gonna have a million, you're gonna have 10 million, you're gonna have so much. And then, boom, the bubble burst and you hear those stories about the guy who put half a million into Bitcoin and suddenly has... Nothing. And you think, man, I would never do that. I don't invest like that. But any investment in anything but the kingdom, any investment that isn't for the kingdom, eventually is just like that. But praise God, that's not the end of our story. We can have the kingdom. It can be ours because of the king, because of his authority and his love. Let's pray. Jesus, our king, we come to you and pray that you would bring your kingdom. And we pray that even just these two little short stories about the treasure and the pearl would captivate our hearts and our minds about what your kingdom could be like. And Father, there's no way in just half an hour to fully unpack the glory and beauty of your kingdom. But I pray that you would increase our longing and our love for it, to increase our longing to see you set up as king, honored as king in every part of heaven and earth, that everything would declare your authority and your power. We pray that you would awaken our hearts to delight in you above everything else, stir our hearts so that our city, our region, and our world would be changed. And we pray, Father, that you would bring your transforming power to every part of our broken and hurting world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.